What's up, church? How are you guys doing this morning? All right, good, good, good. We are glad to be here. I'm glad to be here uh, this morning. Um, the last couple of weeks, we have started our long study in the book of John, which we're going to be doing this for the next few months or so. And, um, and so we started that a couple of weeks ago. And my goal for this series is I'm hoping that we get to know Jesus better. That's it, okay? As simple as that. Uh, see, a lot of us Christians, or, you know, not everybody in here is a Christian, but uh, a lot of us, we've been going to church for a long time, maybe our entire life, maybe for decades, and we've read the Bible, we're just like, you know what, I've read these stories, like, like I know the stories, I've been to church more times than I, than I can count. But the thing I want us to remember is that there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. And if we're a Christian... All right, there's something, I don't know, something like deep within us that, uh, that, you know, we want to know him. We want to know who he is. We want to know not just about him, but we actually want to know him. And so that's what I'm hoping that we will do as, uh, as we go through this series. I think the best way to get to know him is by studying Jesus' life. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, as you know, we just got you know, done celebrating Christmas a couple weeks ago, but Jesus, he was born, and, uh, and then he grew up. He was a kid. He was a teenager. I mean, imagine that one. And then he was in his 20s. He probably, during his 20s, you know, he probably was a carpenter. He learned the family business. He took care of mom. He took care of the family. And uh, when Jesus turned about 30 years old, or when he was you know, roughly in his early 30s, he started revealing who he actually is, and he started revealing why he actually came. And so how he starts that is he goes around and first he picks up, um, he picks some guys to follow him, his disciples, and he picks 12 of those guys. And three days later, the Bible tells us he goes to a wedding and uh, at the prompting of his mom, he does his first miracle, which, which John calls, it was a sign for us. And then a few days after that, we know that him and his disciples, they went up to Jerusalem and, uh, and when they were there, they, they, there's this huge festival going on called the Passover Festival where like tens of thousands, actually a lot of scholars believe that there were hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world that would descend on Jerusalem for this big Passover festival. And Jesus goes for that. And uh, the, one of the first things he does, it looks like, is he goes up to the temple. And when he gets up there, he sees a bunch of stuff going on within the temple that shouldn't be happening in the temple. And, and it angers him. And so remember what he does? We talked about this last week. He goes, he silently you know, starts forming a little whip, and he actually starts whipping people and animals, driving them out of the temple, overturning tables, coins and money is flying everywhere. I mean, it's just a mess because they aren't doing it right, right? All these guys are cheating people and getting rich off of people trying to worship God, and that ticks them off. And so uh, we talked about last week, remember how chapter 2 ends? Okay, he's there for this whole festival, this big, you know, Jerusalem, he's cleared the temple, he's angered people with that. It says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus is there, he's doing all these signs, a whole bunch of people, I mean, they, they, he can't deny it, like they're watching this with, his own, with their own eyes, and they're like, okay, that was crazy, like he just healed that guy, how did he do that? And so instantly Jesus, he becomes a, uh, like an instant celebrity, and all, everybody wants to know, word travels fast, everybody wants to, wants to hear what he's going to say next because Jesus is saying things that he's, they've never heard anybody say before. And they also want to see, you know, what he's going to do next because Jesus is doing, you know, technically impossible things and he's doing things that nobody has ever seen anybody do before. And so uh, Jesus, like I've said before, 
is like we view him as the ultimate religious leader, which I don't like that word religious, but, you know, work with me here. We view him as the ultimate religious leader, but he did not gravitate towards religious people. He didn't. In fact, the religious leaders of that day, they constantly opposed Jesus. They were against Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was messing with their system. All right, he was messing with their rules. I mean, whipping people out of the temple. Like, that's not something that they found access, uh, acceptable um, in, their, in, their, you know, in their, their system there. And so on one hand, you got these religious leaders. They view Jesus as a complete enemy to them. Like, hey, this is our religion. These are our set of rules. You're not following what we said you have to do. But on the other hand, these religious leaders have a million questions for Jesus. And so after seeing Jesus do all these miracles during this like week-long festival, one specific religious leader, one guy comes to Jesus and he plans to ask Jesus a few questions. We see this in John chapter 3 verse 1. It says there's a man uh, from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now we've talked about the Pharisees before. This was a kind of a religious group of people among the religious leaders. Uh, the Pharisees were like, think about it this way, they were professional religious people. Okay, that's how they made their living. That's what they did. They followed all the rules. They did all the stuff. They were all about religion and all about um, just doing all this stuff. So uh, back in the Old Testament, what we find out is that God had given the Jewish people specifically 613 commandments that they were to follow. And there's a few good reasons of why God did that, but we don't have time to get into that today. But these guys, these Pharisees, they had that stuff memorized. Okay, in fact, a lot of them had the first five books of the Bible. I mean, can you imagine that? completely memorized. I mean, these guys, I mean, talking about professional religious people, I mean, these guys were it. I don't even understand how they were able to do all that. And so what they did was to keep the common people and themselves from breaking one of God's 613 commandments, these guys made all kinds of different rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do, basically to keep people from even coming close to breaking one of God's uh, commandments. And so, you know, instead of 613 rules, they imposed on the Jewish people like thousands of rules of all this stuff that you can do and that you can't do and just all this, you know, religious stuff. And so this guy Nicodemus, he's one of those guys. He's got all the, you know, he's got the Bible memorized. He knows the Bible front to back. Uh, he's got all the rules. You know, he does his best. Um, but not only was he a Pharisee, he says, he, the, John, he tells us he was also a ruler of the Jews, which means he was on like the Jewish ruling council of that day, which the Bible describes as the Sanhedrin. That's what this was called. Uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, just to get us into context, was a very well-connected elite group of men who represented Israel to Rome. Okay, that was their job. Uh, they were politically, uh, at this point in history, Rome like owned everybody, okay? The Roman Empire, including the area of Israel. And uh, so these guys were representatives to Rome and to Caesar, but they also were more than that. They were also kind of like the supreme court of the land. So uh, if you had a case or an important case, you could go be, be, you know, before the Sanhedrin and they can judge between who's right and who's wrong and they can make all these you know, judgments. Actually, for a while, they were even, even able to you know, um, do that. They could execute people if they deemed that fit. And so this was a very, very important group of men and a very important you know, club. And very few men were even allowed to be a part of this. They were very powerful. In fact, King Herod, the governor of this area, he wouldn't even dare to defy the Sanhedrin. And so this guy, Nicodemus, is part of this elite club. He's even more than that. He's a Pharisee, so he follows all the rules to a T. 
And he comes to Jesus at night. Says this man came to him at night. All right. There's probably a few reasons for that. Maybe you know one is I think it's really hard to I can imagine it's really hard to get like a one-on-one with Jesus. Okay, because there's crowds all around him, like constantly. Like even Jesus, it was hard for him to get away from the crowds because everybody wanted to see him and everybody wanted to, wanted to hear what he was going to say next. And so uh, it was really hard to get a one-on-one with Jesus. And so here he comes, you know, at night probably because it's best for both of their schedules and he's got some questions that he wants to ask. But there's probably another factor. Remember, Nicodemus, he's part of this elite club, the Sanhedrin. And um, my guess is that, you know, these guys were a group of religious leaders that, you know, Jesus has already offended them, right? We talked about that last week. And these guys are the guys who eventually have Jesus killed. And so my bet is that Nicodemus isn't super excited about having any of his Sanhedrin friends seeing him with this Jesus guy since Jesus has been causing them a little bit of trouble. And so here you got this guy named Nicodemus, he comes before Jesus. Jesus is this brand new rabbi with no credentials. He went from carpenter to rabbi or teacher overnight, and that's never happened before. And then he, on top of that, he's doing all this impossible stuff, mostly healing people and just people have never seen before. And so naturally, we can understand that this religious leader, Nicodemus, he's got some questions. He wants to know, what's this Jesus guy up to? I mean, here's this guy. He spoke with authority but he refused to take charge. Right? He won the crowd really easily, but he refused the crown. Jesus is unlike anything that anybody has ever seen before. And Nicodemus has some questions. In fact, Nicodemus has a lot of questions. And so he begins to go into his speech. He says, hey, rabbi, which just means teacher. He says, rabbi, we know that, like we get it, you're a teacher, right, who has come from God. Like we see that. For no one else could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. All right? Nicodemus is just like, hey, we don't know what you're up to, Jesus. Like, I mean, you're kind of like the Messiah. Remember at this point in history, like, God in the Old Testament has promised the Jewish people this, this person called the Messiah, which just means Savior, that he would be coming. And not only will he be crowned king, not only will he help Israel become their own nation again, but uh, he would save them somehow from their sins and take care of their sin problem. But not even just for the Jewish people, also for the world. And so he's like, I get it. Like, we're here. We're waiting for the Messiah. You know, I don't know when this you know, when this person is coming, but you're kind of like the Messiah, but you're also not very Messiah-like. You're not doing the things that we would expect you to do. Here's Nicodemus saying, hey, but I, I totally understand. Like, he admits, there's one thing that we cannot deny. You must be from God. Like, no one else could do the things that you do, like the miracles you do. In fact, they're even more than miracles to him. I mean, here, he, uh, he specifically says these signs so here Nicodemus, he understands that there's, these aren't just like miracles, like, like Jesus is doing something. Like there's a reason for it. Jesus is going somewhere with all this. And so he recognizes this, and he starts off his, his spiel to Jesus with this. But before Nicodemus could go on, before he could start to ask his, his most important questions, Jesus replies to him. So Jesus replies, he says, hey... Nicodemus, he says, truly I tell you that unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, he hears this, and you know what he's thinking. He's like, there you go again. 
Okay, this is exactly what, you know, here's some of my questions. Like, why do you do that? Like, why do you, you, you know, I didn't even get to my question yet, and here you are. You're talking about stuff that I don't understand. Like, what are you talking about? This is so, so confusing. Jesus, what is going on here? What do you mean born again? And he's also looking at this. He's like, the kingdom of God. Like, like that's something that Nicodemus was super familiar with. He's like, I don't know what you mean by born again, but I get what you're talking about with the kingdom of God. And he's like, you know, the way Nicodemus would think as a Jew, he's like, I'm a Jew. Like, I was born into this nation. I was born into, like, God's nation or God's kingdom. And uh, someday, I to- someday I totally understand that God has promised us that someday we'll have a king and we'll have our kingdom back. And it's going to be awesome. And if that happens in my lifetime, I already understand. He's like, I'm in. I'm in this club because of my heritage and because I was born into it. I'm a Jew. I'm already in the club. And then he's thinking to himself, so he understands that part. But he's like, whoa, whoa, back, back, back up, Jesus. All right. Did you just say born again? What? the heck does that mean? That's what he says. He says, how can anybody be born when he is old? That makes no sense. He says, can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born in which this, which, you know, in this case, I think Jesus is like, what, what, what? whoa, whoa, stop. Just stop, okay? Let's not go there. No one's trying to think about that. And so Nicodemus, he knows, like this, he's an intelligent guy. All right, this guy, he's no he, he's not dumb. Like, he knows Jesus is kind of messing with him and, and being vague on purpose. And, and obviously, he knows, like, being physically born again is an impossible thing. But what Jesus is doing, and I don't know why Jesus is doing this, but um, this is just my guess. Maybe because Nicodemus is a professional religious guy. Maybe because Nicodemus is a teacher of the Bible. It's like Jesus, he goes straight into graduate-level theology talk. Like right away, he's like, oh, hey, you, okay, let's talk. And he starts going into this, yet he keeps it simple. He keeps it weird, but he also keeps it simple. And Jesus, I think at this point, obviously I don't know this for sure, but I bet Jesus smiles. And he doubles down. And he's like, yeah, you heard me right. Truly I tell you that unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, heaven. He says, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit, in which case Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? And, and Jesus, what he's doing here, and Nicodemus I don't think understands this, but he's pointing out there's two different types of birth that you need to be worried about, Nicodemus. There's two different types of birth that we need to think about. Number one, you got flesh, he says, which is physical, okay? We've all done that because we're here, okay? Um, he's like, you got that? We've all experienced that. But he's also like, there's another type of birth, and that's a, more, that's a spiritual birth. And by the way, this one happens to be the most important one. Basically, Jesus is saying it takes more than just being a Jew to reach the, what he calls the kingdom of God, or what he's talking about is heaven. And so he says in the next verse, he says, don't be amazed, because Nicodemus is like, huh? What? He's like, don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. He says, the wind blows, and here, Jesus, he's going to use the wind as an illustration, which Jesus did also often. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You don't know anything about the wind. He says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, he's right here, he, he's talking about, he, he's trying to illustrate this, and He's like, think about the wind, Nicodemus. Like, like, think about it. The wind is invisible. Like, no one's ever seen the wind. You can't see the wind. You can't see it. But he's like, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can hear it. Okay, you can see, you know, you can see the effects. You can th- see things blown around. And so you know that it's real. 
He's like, it's kind of the same thing with spiritual birth, this other birth. It's invisible. It's not something that you can, like, grab onto or hold onto or see, yet we can see the effects of spiritual birth, and we know it's real. And at this point, I think Nicodemus, he's standing there, he's like, what is going on? Like, Jesus, we are missing. I'm going this way. You're going this way. Like, we are, we are missing here. I don't understand any of this. Like, you're getting weird with my mom, and now you're talking about wind. I don't know how all those things connect. Like, where is this going? And he even says, he's like, huh? How could these things be? He asked. He says, Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Here he's kind of. He's kind of poking at him a little bit. I think he's smiling here. He says, truly I tell you that we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. He says, if I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things or things that you can't even understand anyway? He says, no one has ascended into heaven or goes, no one has gone up to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See, Jesus is basically saying, he's saying, hey, here's, here's the deal. Nicodemus, I, you're a good guy. Like, I know you're a good guy. I know you follow all the rules. I know you're a religious man. I know you go study your Bible and you go to church all the time and you do all the good things in life. But here's the deal, Nicodemus. It's not like you're three-fourths of the way to heaven. It's not like you're almost there. It's not like you're winning the race against everybody else uh, to Heaven. By the way, let me just point out that every religion on the planet teaches you the exact opposite. Okay? We get that. That's what religion is. Do a bunch of things. Check off all these boxes. And eventually, you know, you'll stand before God and God will say, okay, all right, you've done that, done that, done that. Okay, wow. That's pretty good. I'm going to let you into heaven because of what you have done. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's what religion teaches. Religion teaches, including, I mean, I'll be honest, including the Catholic Church, okay? The religion teaches that it's up to you and your hard work to ascend to heaven. It's up to you. And here Jesus is like, no. Nicodemus, I get that's what you think, but that's actually not at all how any of this works. He says nobody can get to heaven on their own. He says no one has ascended to heaven. No one can ascend to heaven. It's impossible. He's like, actually, actually, one person has been to heaven. One person has ascended to heaven. And he says, and that person who he's referring to himself didn't ascend. He actually descended. He came down to us, to you. Now, it's interesting. Some people believe that, you know, we probably got people in here that you're like, you know what? Uh, you know, personally, I, like, I don't want to exclude anybody or leave anybody out, but I believe that you know, all religions, ah, they're pretty much the same thing. Like basically, you know, all roads or all religions eventually lead to heaven. We kind of view it as like, you know, I don't know, like this big mountain. We're all trying to get to the top, and there's a bunch of different paths and roads up, and it doesn't really matter which one we take. And some might be harder than others, but it doesn't really matter which one we take as long as we all end up in the same place. Or maybe to you, you're like, you know, I'm not even religious. Like, I don't even care about religion or anything like that. And for you, you're just like, I don't even think it's about religion. I think it's like you just got to do a bunch of good stuff. Like, if you're a good person and uh, if you, you know, help people and um, if you just leave the earth better than it was, you know, when you got here, then uh, I think that's enough that, you know, someday you'll be able to go to heaven and God will accept that. You got to understand who he's talking to. You remember who he's talking to here? He's talking to this dude, Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's better than you. He's better than me, right, when it comes to doing good stuff. He's talking to a guy who has achieved so much politically, more than anybody else in this room, 
Right? He's at the top of his game. He's at the top level politically. Uh, we're talking to a guy who has achieved so much academically. I mean, this guy is smarter than any of us. Okay, he's got books of the Bible memorized in his mind. I don't even understand how that's possible. Okay, I find it hard to memorize like two verses in a row, let alone a book. Okay, he's got that done. All right, he's, uh, he's achieved so much academically. He's got all, you know, all the, the letters before his name. He's, he's achieved so much religiously. Again, he's, he's got all these rules down and he knows it better than anybody else. He's achieved so much in his career. He's reached a higher point in his career than anybody in this room is going to be, going to achieve. I mean, this guy's got power. And I think, actually, in our society, we view people with power as bad for some reason. Okay? Because it's like, oh, they could abuse it. Which, you know, if we were in power, probably most of us in this room, we'd abuse it too. And we look bad on other people. But here, I mean, this guy, he's got power, sure. But he uses it for good. Like, he's genuinely a good guy. Like, he's trying to help people. He's trying to help people. He's trying to help his people. He's trying to help people find, you know, get to heaven and, and, and find God. He's trying, you know, here's a guy. If anybody's using power for good, I mean, it's this guy. And here's Jesus. And he's sitting here. And he's just like, you know what? Here's, here's what you got to understand. You ain't good enough. In which case, I'm sure Nicodemus is like, huh? What are you talking about? I've done all this stuff. Jesus is like, no, no, no. You don't understand. You can't get there on your own. That's what he says. No one has gotten to heaven on their own. He's like, you can't do it. It's impossible for you, no matter how good you are. I think maybe this is the reason why he's using the example of birth. Now, I've seen birth a few times, and uh, people say it's beautiful. That ain't true, okay? It's just not, okay? Some people, I know you, some of you guys have, like, had pictures taken, and, you know, I don't, like, photographer, I, I don't understand that. Um, we did not do that because I don't want to relive any of those moments. I get it's a precious thing, maybe more for moms. I don't know. But for me, it looked painful, and I almost passed out, okay? So that's the truth of that. But um, re, re, do you remember in your own life, remember being born? No, right? You were there for it, though, right? Yeah, yes, you were. Okay. All right. Let's get that straight. Um, biology. Uh, re- remember how much effort you put into it? Do you remember when you got to choose your birthday? Remember when you got to choose your mom? Remember all that stuff? See, I've watched birth and I've seen our kids be birthed. They didn't really do anything. Like, they didn't do any work. You know who was working? It wasn't me. All right. It was Kate. She was doing all the work, and it did not look pleasant by any means. See, somebody was in that, when you were being born, somebody in that room was working, and it wasn't you. See, I think maybe Jesus is trying to refer that to how he has saved us. Like, that's just like God saving us, right? Like, here's what we got to understand. Like, listen in. If you haven't been paying attention, that's cool. I respect that. Listen in real quick. The only thing that you brought to your salvation is the sin that you needed saved from. That's it. The only thing, the only thing that you brought to your salvation is the sin that you needed saved from. That's the truth. We don't bring any good stuff. It's not like a bunch of good things that we pile up. We're like, okay, well, you know, if my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, then I am good. Like God, you know, it's not like God ever looks down on us and says, wow, look at all that pile of good things you did. I am so impressed. Man, you are You are so good. You're definitely getting it. Like, that's not a scenario that ever happens. He did all the work. We didn't do anything. And you know why he had to do all the work? Because you couldn't. I couldn't. He's the one who had to do it. Here's the deal. You are a sinner. Right? You know how I know that? Because I'm an expert one. 
okay? I'm an expert in sin. Like, we all are. We are messed up, jacked up, horrible, terrible people. That's what the Bible tells us. And at this point, when Jesus is pointing out, you know, the, the, this idea, in, this, you know, this messed up idea in, in Nicodemus' mind, because he thinks, you know, if he does enough good, he's going to get there on his own. And Jesus is correcting that. He's like, no, no, actually, you're not good enough. You can't do that. Maybe at this point, Nicodemus starts to understand. And then Nicodemus brings it down, or then Jesus brings it down to Nicodemus's level. He says, think about it this way, all right? He says, just as Moses, and as soon as Jesus brings up Moses' name, Nicodemus, like, light bulb goes on. He's like, oh, Moses, now I know, like, now we can have a conversation. Like, I know Moses. All right, Moses was like our national hero. Moses is the one who God used. Like, he's like, our, he's like a father. He's the one who wrote the first five books. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here, um, this is a story. As soon as Jesus starts talking about Moses and the snake, which a lot of us, we were like, what is he talking about? Nicodemus, he understands. His mind instantly goes back to Numbers chapter 21. He's like, oh, okay, okay, I got you, Jesus, now. I know this story. Like, I've taught on this story. And this is a story from about 1,500 years before Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation. And what's going on in the story is the Jewish people had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, for generation after generation after generation. And when things get bad enough, they start crying out to God. They start praying to God, God, please get us out of here. This is horrible. This is terrible. We don't want to do this anymore. And as they start crying, the Bible tells us that God hears their cries and God hears their prayers. And so he takes this guy, Moses, who, by the way, didn't want any part of it. He didn't want to, he didn't want to lead. He couldn't, he was like, I couldn't even talk, right? And so he takes this, this guy, Moses, and he uses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And it took a while. I mean, Pharaoh first, he was like, no way, no way, no way. And then after like 10 plagues, the Pharaoh's like, just take him. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And so Moses leads these people out of Egypt and they're following this like cloud, okay, this pillar cloud thing that they're following around the wilderness because God's taken them to this land that he's promised them called the promised land. And so um, they're following that for a while. And there's about 2 million of these Jewish people doing this. And then at night they're following like a, like a, a fireball thing. Okay. Like a pillar of fire, like would be awesome to see. Like obviously they're going, okay, all I know is that God is real. And so they're doing this and you know what they start doing? Complaining. We don't do that, right? We would never complain about stuff. In fact, you know what they're complaining about? At first, they start complaining about food. Like, oh, we don't have enough food. So God gives them, like, special food. And then they start complaining about that special food. Like, oh, we're so sick of this special food. All right? And then they start complaining. They're like, you know, this is taking them a long time. Which, by the way, is interesting. You know what God does? He doesn't take them the shortest way to the land. He takes them in some circles. He takes them the long way. He takes them kind of all over the place. And the people, I don't know if they know he's doing this, but they're like, we passed this rock before. You know, I remember that rock. What is going on here? We're going in circles. Does the pillar of fire know where he's going? You know, they're thinking like that type of thing. And so they start complaining about that. And they start saying stuff like, Moses, we wish we were back in Egypt. Man, being a slave was so much better. Why can't we go back to that? And this angers God. In fact, it angers God so much that God has to correct him because he's a, you know, he's like a, he's a loving dad here for us. And so he has to correct us. That's the loving thing to do. And you know what he does? God sends a bunch of snakes. <laughs> Doesn't that freak you out? Right? 
How many would you like, like if God starts sending snakes and there's snakes all over your house? Like that's, that's what was going on here. Snakes everywhere. And these snakes were poisonous and these snakes were biting people and people were dying. And when this starts happening, I mean, it's like a miraculous thing. People are like, ah, snake, oh, I'm dead. You know, that type of thing. And they're going all over the place. They start going to Moses and they're like, they're like Moses, Moses, tell God to stop the snakes. We're so sorry. We shouldn't have complained. We, you know, we'll never do that again. Please, 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 please. And Moses goes to God and he's like, God, what do I do about this? We got some snake problem going on here. Um, can you just take away the snakes? And what's interesting about it, God says, basically, now, <laughs> I'm not going to take away the snakes, but I will give you a way out. What I want you to do is I want you to take some bronze. I want you to form together like a bronze snake. Then I want you to put the snake on a pole. And uh, I want you to walk around camp, which too many people. I mean, there's like acres and acres and acres and acres of camp. And uh, if anybody gets bit, people are still going to get bit. And when they get bit, what you're going to do is if they look at the pole and they see it, they don't got to touch the snake, they don't got to kiss the snake, they don't got to pet the snake, nothing like that. All right? He's like, if they just look at the snake, they'll be healed. They won't die. As Moses is like, get to work, you know, and they do that. And so here's Jesus. He's referring back to this story, and he's talking to Nicodemus, who is very familiar with it. He's taught on it probably a million times. And Jesus is like, hey, remember that story? Nicodemus is like, yeah. He's like, guess what? The Son of Man must be lifted up kind of like that snake was lifted up. And here, when Jesus is talking about the Son of Man, he's referring to the Messiah. He's referring to the Savior that the Jewish people have been waiting for for, you know, for a long time. And he's like, yeah, he's going to be lifted up on a pole too. And Nicodemus, when he hears this, he's just like, oh, whoa, 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 you're saying that the Messiah, the Savior, he will hang on a pole? Like, I don't get that. That's not in the Bible. I don't see that anywhere. See, Jesus, he said a lot of things that no one understood until after the resurrection three years later, including his disciples. A lot of things started to click after he died and was raised again. See, it's interesting because as John's writing this, decades later, like John's at the end of his life here, like he's an old man. He's starting to realize maybe how important this conversation was. It's almost like he's writing this down. He's like, hey, I don't want you guys to miss this. This is like, this is like intense stuff. And John's getting ready to add his own words. He's getting ready to add some commentary here. And he had no idea that the next 23 words that he wrote down, or maybe he's, maybe he's dictating this to a scribe, we don't know, that what these 23 words would echo around the world for the next 2,000 years. And what he does is he shifts his conversation, or he shifts what he's writing about from the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, and he shifts that to, here, here's what Jesus is talking about. I understand this now. You got to understand this. In verse 16, he says, here's what Jesus is trying to, here's what he's, he's saying. We just didn't get it. He says, for God loved God loved the world, and this is how he showed it. He showed it in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not have to perish, will not have to go to hell and pay for everything they've ever done wrong, but instead it will be the opposite. They actually get to have eternal life. They get to spend eternity with their creator. See, he says this, and I think a lot of times, especially us as Christians, us as a society, we've heard this verse so many times, John 3, 16. We're like, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and we're like, okay, yeah, I get it. But, um, but this is important. Right? This is what John is trying to say. He's like, for God 
love. Now, the word love is one of those things that, you know, society has kind of messed up our view of love. Like we, you know, when we think of love, like where, where do we learn what love is? Like from TV and movies and songs and stuff like that. Um, society's definition of love, by the way, is shallow, it's hollow, and it's empty. It's just, it just is. And society looks down on the biblical view of love. This is what love is. Okay, if you want to know what love is, it's this. Love is, I see the flaws in you. Love is, I see the ugly side of you, and I'm staying. That's what love is. Love is, I see the ugly side, I see the darkness, I see the blackness of your heart, and I'm keeping this relationship with you. I choose to have this relationship with you even so. That's what true love is. By the way, society says that's unhealthy. That's what love is. Right? Like, aren't you glad, right, that God doesn't love us like how society tells us what love is? Like, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at us and says, wow, man, okay, yeah, you rebelled against me today by having that thought, so I'm not going to, you know, I, we're, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, I'm not staying. See, one problem that we have with the word love is, you know, we don't even have the language for it. You know how I know? Because we love, you know, vacation, and we love our dog, and we love fajitas, you know? <laughs> that's, that's, that's why we can't even describe what love is. And even if we had the language to describe what love actually is, like, we couldn't even fathom it. And what did God do because of his love? Right? He gave. By the way, that's what love does. Love gives. Right? That's what you do when you love. See, a lot of us, what, the way we view love is we, it's like a conditional thing. It's like, if you do this, then I'll do this. It's, hey, you know, um, I choose to love you, but you have to meet my needs. I choose to love you, but you have to, but, but I have to feel this. I have to receive this. I have to have comfort. I have to feel love in return. It's just all these things. That's not love. Love is a one-way thing for you. Love is I choose to love you even if I don't receive the things that I want, even if I don't see the, receive the things that I need. It's not about receiving anything. Receiving isn't even a part of love. Love is giving. That's what love is. And what did God give? His one and only son. In fact, what this actually, you know, means is he's saying um, it's it's really one of a kind son. What John's trying to get us to understand is he's trying to get us to understand how special and unique this man Jesus is. God gave his one of a kind son so that everyone, go back one, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We'll go to the next one. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, at least not yet, but to save the world through him. See, John wants us to understand. Here's the deal. Maybe some of you guys have never heard it this way. Jesus came as a rescue mission. That's it. It was a rescue mission. He came to save us. And my guess is that at this point, Nicodemus, he doesn't understand. He's just like, what is going on here? I don't get this. And it's funny, throughout this conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus, Nicodemus never gets his questions answered. 
In fact, he doesn't even get a chance to ask his questions. And, you know, I'm sure he went home to his wife and his friends who were like, you know, did you do it? Did it work? Did you get to talk to him? He's like, oh, yeah, I talked to him. Yeah, this is different. You know, and they're like, did you get your questions answered? Hey, did you ask him that question I was asking you to ask him? And he's like, actually, yeah, we didn't get to the questions. Jesus did most of the talking here. You know, I was just trying to keep up. See, if you fast forward three years, what we find is that Nicodemus is there when Jesus is arrested. And, you know, Nicodemus is looking at this and he's saying, man, I think Jesus is the Messiah. But it's not ending the way he expected. Actually, I'm sure Nicodemus, he can't even understand. He can't even believe what's happening because the Sanhedrin, his own club, his own group of people, he, his group is directly responsible to handing Jesus over and having Jesus you know, crucified on this cross. They hand Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate has Jesus flogged. He brings Jesus' bloody pulp of a body before the crowd. And then the Sanhedrin, those guys are out there, and they stir up the crowd to start screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And even Pilate's like, he hasn't done anything. I, you know, this doesn't even seem right. And they're like, do it. And so Pilate, he gets a bowl of water. He washes his hands in front of the crowd, and he says, you know what? This blood is on your hands, not mine. I'm innocent of this. And he orders Jesus executed. And I bet Nicodemus is in the crowd, and he's just like, no, not Jesus. This ain't fair. This ain't right. And they take Jesus, they lead him to the hill where he's going to be crucified on. And I bet, I bet Nicodemus is there. We know Jesus' disciples are there. We know a bunch of people following Jesus. I bet the Sanhedrin, his whole club is there too because they want to make sure that this thing gets done. And he's there and he hears the cries as they drive nails through Jesus' hands. And, and he hears the, the hammer hitting the nails and he hears this stuff. He's there for it. And then he watches. He sees the top of the heads of everybody standing in front of him, huge crowd. He watches as they lift that cross up. And he sees Jesus hanging on it. Can you imagine that? I bet in that moment, he remembers back to the time where he had that one conversation, that one time three years ago in the middle of the night with Jesus. And he's going, oh, that's not what I thought he meant. Just like the snake was hanging. He's saying the, the Messiah has to hang on a pole too. He's watching Jesus hang there. He's just like, oh, Jesus said this would happen. A few hours later, Jesus is dead. Nicodemus, with a buddy of his, they risk their life. They go to Pilate, who's the governor for Rome in that area, and they ask for Jesus' body. So Jesus' body isn't just thrown on a pile of, you know, dead people. Like, like what would happen to most people who are crucified. They're like, no, he at least needs a proper burial. So they put him in a tomb. And they thought it was all over. Until three days later, they get reports that, now Jesus, he's back up at it. He's not there anymore. See, G Nicodemus, he didn't have all the answers to all of his questions. But you know what he did know? He did know that Jesus was different and that Jesus had to be from God. And I think for a lot of us, I think a lot of us, we can relate to Nicodemus because, you know, let's be honest, some of you guys are just like him. You've come here, you don't know what this old Jesus guy is all about, you don't know what he was up to, and you got some questions. See, Jesus met Nicodemus right where he was. It doesn't matter what group you belong to. It doesn't matter what kind of questions you have. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what things you have done. Jesus shows love to Nicodemus, and ultimately, he answers Nicodemus's most important questions. Nicodemus just doesn't realize it for a few years. See, Jesus came to die for you. 
came to die for me. Why? Because we ain't good enough. None of us are. And because he loves us. And so God, being perfectly just, he has to punish evil. That's the right, just thing for him to do. Can't just sweep it under the rug. Can't just go, oh, that's cute. I'm looking the other way. That doesn't happen. All right, he has to, he, it has to be paid for. And he came down, born in a barn, born in the dirt, and he paid for that himself so that each and every one of us can have the choice. It's a choice for us whether we want to accept that or not, whether we want to have a relationship with that or not. And John said it right here today. He says all you have to do is you got to believe. It's not just believing that he existed, not just believing that he was, you know, that he was a, a person. It's not, it's, it's more than that. It's you got to believe and you got you to give your life over to him. It's like you got to surrender your life to him. Not that you're going to be perfect afterwards, but God's going to start working on you. And so if you've never done that before, if you're sitting here, you're like, man, I don't know, man. I don't know if I've done that or not. Do that today. Don't do it this afternoon. Don't do that tomorrow because you're not guaranteed that you're going to make it home after church. God doesn't owe that to you. You haven't earned that. Do it during this next song. Give your life over to him. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't got to understand everything. Surrender your life to him. He came and he died for you. And then tell somebody. Somebody who brought you, tell somebody who, you know, who invited you or whatever. Write it on a card. Turn it in at the inform- information desk after the church. After church, we want to we know. It's the most important decision you could ever make in your entire life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your life. We thank you for dying for us. You didn't have to do that. You didn't owe us that in any way. We didn't earn it. In fact, we are messed up, horrible, terrible people. It's the honest truth. Our hearts are dark. And we constantly rebel against you. And for some reason, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. You love us anyway. And God, we thank you so much for that. Lord, we ask that if there's anybody in this room that hasn't made the decision to follow you yet, that they would give their lives to you today. Not wait till tomorrow. Not wait till next week. That they would do it now. Do it today. There's no better time than right now. It doesn't even have to be out loud. Just you know our every thoughts. God, we ask that. In Jesus' name, amen.